Welcome to the Dallas Space Innovators Podcast. I'm Andrew Louder, founder and CEO of Dallas-based consulting firm Louder Co. There's so many great people innovating in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. This podcast aims to highlight them, the amazing things they're doing, and get behind the scenes on their approach and on them personally. At my company, Louder Co., we're the innovation specialists business leaders turn to when their organization must perform better. Artificial intelligence, business transformation, and venture building projects are usually very stressful. Not with us. We believe your business will soon begin losing without an AI strategy. We create AI strategies to accelerate operations and create revolutionary new technology products. We do that because we're tired of seeing businesses that keep letting bad operations kill their growth. Through change initiatives like creating innovation hubs, improving processes, and instilling technologies, we transform companies to perform better and grow faster. Our gift to you for listening is access to our free Intro to Artificial Intelligence Guide. We hit on what is AI, where's it going, and how to get it into your business. Get that free guide at louderco.com slash intro to AI. We look forward to serving you. Visit us at louderco.com for more information, insightful content, and ways to schedule our first conversation. Thank you for listening and on to our show. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Dallas-based Innovator Show presented by Louderco. I'm Andrew Louder. I am thrilled about our guest today. His name is Terry Hubert. He's founder and CEO of innovation engineering firm Darwin Ecosystem. They specialize in AI, blockchain, mobile applications, really bringing so many different crazy innovations to the mix of business processes. I'm really excited to hear him talk about what he's seeing out in the market, the things that they're doing there at Darwin. And, um, you know, can't be happy enough to have him here on the show. So, Terry, welcome. Well, thank you, Andrew. Well, uh, Terry, you know, we usually like to start off just starting with a good one to two minute bio. You know, tell us a bit about yourself, some high level accomplishments. Um, I think pretty soon we'll find out you're not a native Texan. So <laughs> we'll uh, love to hear a bit more about, about uh, yourself. Great. Well, um, well, it's a long story because I'm not as young as I might think. <laughs> One to two minutes, please. To, no, not even. <laughs> uh, so uh, my formative years, right? So I, I'm French. I was born in France and moved to Canada, went back and forth, and then moved to the U.S. And um, in Canada, I was, uh, I was passionate about a lot of things. I'm a fencer. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you know that already, I think. Right? Yeah. And oh, yeah. the biggest thing, uh, I think, is was that I... I really started on, on computers early on, and I was a fan of organic chemistry. And I built my first uh, my first software uh, on a Texas Instrument 4A. So that's a tape deck. Can you wow. imagine that? Right? No. Uh, so I was more fascinated by sociology and not and whatnot. But um, early adoption of technology and the type of work uh, that people were looking at uh, accomplishing back then around how do we make sense of this technology? How do we implement it? That was really a mainframe, mean computers that were emerging. So uh, even as a teenager, because of my aptitude, I started to build systems. Wow. IBM systems, funny enough, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, continued to pursue an education uh, in basically social science. But what really got me going uh, is I used to work for Price Waterhouse in Toronto and then moved to Boston. 
and uh, studied the impact of technology on society, uh, on the hierarchical structure and the organization at MIT with Professor Vodolikovsky. And it was at the beginning of, uh, of groupware. So I was involved in Lotus Notes. Okay. So all, all products I'm taking you <laughs> to the, to the mid eighties, late eighties. Right. Uh, so some of the notable accomplishment around that is that, um, when I left Pricewaterhouse, we created a company called the human interface group mm-hmm. and the human interface group was, uh, bringing a, a, basically a flavor of collaboration, computing group computing, uh, with, uh, measurable KPIs for different companies. One of them at the time being Lotus. And uh, Lotus acquired my company in 1994. And I'm the creator of something called Team Room, which uh, led to our team uh, spinning off uh, all these wonderful tools like eRoom in the 90s and whatnot. But IBM acquired Lotus in uh, in 95. And um, I was director of the uh, Lotus Institute back then, um, focusing on knowledge management solutions. And um, when they acquired... Uh, it was just at a time where we were building some strong relationship in France. So they asked me to go to Paris to uh, to run the research and development for emerging technology. And back then, really, it was the beginning of the, the Internet. How do we do network computing? How do we implement technology? And how what impact does it have in collaboration? Because you have to understand this. Everybody was about empirical measurements back then, processes mm. and whatnot. When dealing with knowledge management, you're starting to deal with chaos. You're starting to deal with unstructured data. And the biggest thing was, how do you take this tacit knowledge and make it explicit? So I worked with IBM like this, and in Europe and throughout uh, Middle East and Africa, we were for five years, came back to the United States. 9-11 occurred, and back then I was creating a P2P company. Uh, we were, I was really focused on the peer-to-peer aspect rather than centralized model. Um, and uh, one thing led to another, just uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, for work, we created the company, and then um, I postulated that chaos theory could be applied to to help structure uh, unstructured information and and consume massive amount of unstructured data. So I won an award for that. Mm. It was the Young Entrepreneur Initiative, it was the French uh, Ministry of Science and Technology. Congrats! Um, and uh, and that launched Darwin Ecosystem. Funny enough, uh, and that was in uh, 2007, 2008. And in 2012, I turned the algorithm um, towards uh, more social media-driven content like Twitter and uh, presented at TechCrunch in San Francisco in 2012. And we were recognized as the big data startup of the year. So we won the award wow. at TechCrunch back then. And, and I never thought I was going to, to, to talk again to IBM, right, or mm-hmm. at least see. But, but sure enough, next year I go to the big data tech con in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we were based in Boston back then and Montreal and opened a research and development center in Montreal. And um, wow, funny enough, Watson was something that was really uh, getting traction at IBM. They started to make some, have some press announcement. And some of my old colleagues says, Cherry, a lot of the work that we're doing and a lot of the work that you did dealing with uh, knowledge management uh, is, uh, is starting to emerge again as a, as a practical use of AI. So I started to work with the Watson Foundation, with uh, some of the folks at IBM, and build tighter relationship. And uh, we advanced as an R&D company, an innovation company. We have our own fab lab also. So we were building our own technology. Now IoT is a big buzzword. But bottom line, Dallas two and a half years ago to work closely with uh, some of the local opportunities, having clients on the West Coast made it easier than being in Boston. 
And it's an emerging um, city. Uh, new companies come here. They're looking for new ideas. And, and IBM um, was instrumental two and a half years ago to, to get me to come here. Uh, they felt that there was a great deal of opportunity. Uh, they have a center in Coppell. And as a business partner, we came, but we're we're pretty much agnostic, not just right. only IBM. But it's it was uh, it was a drive as to why we came here, and we serve clients in in different uh, area in finance, uh, manufacturing, uh, healthcare. Actually, funny enough, uh, pet healthcare. Go figure. Yeah, 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 we don't have to deal with HIPAA as much, right? So <laughs> a lot of, and we do mobile application and build some IoT, um, even in uh, electronic currency model. So we. We touch a lot of things like that. So I, I hope I answered your question. Maybe I went overboard. Yeah, you did. No, you actually <laughs> uh, tackled some follow-up questions as well, which is great. Um, you know, one thing that caught my attention there, other than just a lot of the uh, incredible um, accomplishments you identified there, is this Fab Lab. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. What goes on in there? What's oh, wow. come out of it? Are you able to, to share anything? Sure, or? of course, yeah. of course. The Fab Lab is to me is uh, is something really important. Uh, a lead uh, innovation engineer over there, Ross Power, is somebody I've worked with a long time. I actually held a position at C two in a company where we met. Um, the Fab Lab is essential today. You cannot have an ecosystem of solutions without connection, mm-hmm. because everything is about connecting. So I'll give you a really great example. There's this. Uh, initiative that we started a few years ago uh, with a young uh, young subject, a young woman who has a threat syndrome, which means that she you don't really know if she is uh, fully cognitive or she expresses herself. She's oh, wow. since the age of one. As a matter of fact, for the work we've done there, which is uh, basically analyzing the pattern that comes from the EEG signals and the, uh, from her from a specialized uh, gear that we mm-hmm. built, um, powered by OpenBCI and all these wonderful technologies, but uh, analyzing the patterns. And we, um, we look for commonality around the intention. So we introduce a new concept. So we build the device and we build the interface with the device in such a way that we also can give a visual feedback to the mother. And one thing we did, which was, I think, phenomenal in this particular use case, mm-hmm. is that instead of just looking at the pure technology, trying to get feedback from the data that we get from the from the, the subject, we introduced the concept of an external marker, which is the mother, and or what we call the intimate interpreter. Mm. So not only were we able to observe the brainwave pattern if uh, her name is Boo, code name Boo. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and you may you may see of it. There, there's some information on that that's been published. Um, we also actually made the first page of. Uh, I was going to ask of, if that was it. The yeah. business. Yeah, that's Dallas right. Morning News. Mm-hmm. We sure did because of that. And, and so what's beautiful about the project is that not only her brain patterns were detected, but there was a, a visual rendering of her brain patterns. So when mama observed that Boo was not comfortable, for instance, she would let us know on, this, on the system that she's observing that she's not comfortable as, a, as an observation. But she could also ask her a question, prompt her, and have an interpretation as to what she feels her daughter responded to. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's very an emotional case because a caregiver doesn't have the intimacy the mom has. So imagine mom is gone, and we created a technology that is able to, to detect a pattern against a marker, against an intention that mom has recorded with a level of confidence. So it, it, it improves our communication. So this is an extreme case. So we could not have done this without our fab lab where we have our 3D printing, we're doing a component to our electronics, a connectivity. 
Um, this is, to me, this is remarkable. This is a, a way to say, wow, we have a great idea. People talk about AI, but, but where are you going to get the data? The data isn't structured. The data comes from life. The data comes from, from movement. Right. Uh, technology doesn't often offer uh, access to those data. And, and that's what the Fab Lab does. It, it allows us to create sensors, things that people didn't think about before. Incredible. So. Yeah, incredible. So what's, if you could take us behind the scenes on this particular example, how did, how did the idea come about? And then, you know, I, you know is there it started a methodology a you follow to get this going? Well, how does this happen? Okay, so, so I'm glad you bring this up because everybody tries to, to find what is the process that you can reproduce, like cookie cutter. Yeah, to, yeah. <laughs> to an extent, right? Or at least give us a sense for, you know, I think, especially around innovation, I think people are wowed by like, dang, how did this, how'd you come up with this? How did you bring it to life? How did, so Possibilities. Yeah. Correlation and possibilities. I'll tell you, this came came actually to us by somebody at IBM who received a tweet where somebody had seen a wow. wheelchair being moved with the mind. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and they, you know, these types of technology where you train your brain to, to actually think a certain way so that the sensors pick it up so you can move objects. It, 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 there's nothing really remarkable about that, but a friend of the mother apparently tweeted and asked, can, can Watson do this? Can IBM do this? And can it move the wheelchair? Well, go come to find out. You present all the situation, right? You present the context, and you realize that, okay, it's a nice fantasy to think like that, but what if you don't even know if the child has the ability to, to give you feedback to respond to you? Mm-hmm. You don't. So when I observed the situation, I started to understand more and more the constraints. I started to understand the limitations. And it became clear to me that that was ambitious, but it was also really a, a nice uh, f- surface-level um, understanding of what the technology could do not really understanding the subject, not really understanding the circumstances. Yes, okay, make her move a wheelchair, but God forbid we we, we misinterpret it, um, how her patterns work or even her attention, or even if she's able to have that kind of cognitive capability. So we had to go fundamental. We had to go fundamental. And this is the thing about AI, yep. right? Pattern detection. That's all it is, pattern detection and correlations. So So you had to go down to that level. So to your question, in terms of a process, yeah. in terms of how do you autom- automate innovation, you don't. You don't. I'll tell you. What it is, it's, it's your ability as somebody to, to have a vision of all the actors in an ecosystem and understand that technology only does two things. It accelerates time and space. And mm-hmm. when you accelerate time and space, you're going to create some disruption. Some beneficial, some not so beneficial. To understand the connectivity between entities and to understand the injection of technology is really what this is about. And that's where innovation comes from. It's, it's not a prefabricated right. formula. It's a mindset more than anything else. And I know that we, and this is why AI is so hard for people. The concept of mm-hmm. organic versus deterministic. I can create an AI that creates a model that is completely immoral or that is completely useless um, but it doesn't have an existential condition. It doesn't have, there's some things that it doesn't do. We, I often tell people, and maybe I'm jumping ahead on a question you may have. No but, problem. But I often tell people, you know, when you look at a computer and you think it reasons, it fools you to think yep. it reasons. That's right. You think it's AI. Right? Yeah, incredible, right? right. It's amazing how we, t- and it really an inanimate object that, you know, I, my mind gets blown sometimes when my iPhone runs out of battery 
and it's useless. And I look at it and it's like, this is a piece of glass on top of some metal and in inner workings. How the heck does it work? <laughs> like, it just blows me away <laughs> that this, this piece of hardware can do so many things and we view it in such a way and it has such an importance in our lives day in and day out. Well, because it, it extended something, right? It extends yeah. a sense. It, it extends communication. Again, it accelerates time and space. Mm -hmm. And this this is what this life is about, right? It's it's our existence in a movement of time and space. It really is. So every time we do something that impacts that we, we are, and improves it, we gravitate towards it. it, it it's just that simple. Yeah. So in a lot of conversations I have, it, it always seems like one of the biggest challenges to running a successful business is the people, finding the right talent. Yes. You guys have been utilizing AI to find um, and solve hiring problems for all kinds of different customers. Mm -hmm. In particular, you guys have built something rather extraordinary for um, uh, police departments. Right. Can you talk to us about that? Sure, absolutely. So one thing that um, you brought the topic of law enforcement and police department, and I think it's we've had a good success story on that one. Mm -hmm. So in New England, um, a company called Police Exam Solution um, administers um, exams for the entry and the candidates who want to become police officers. And one of the things is that uh, they do is they deal with the aptitude, background checks, physical aptitude, uh, cognitive aptitude of that nature. But one of the, the things that we, we became increasingly aware and they, they were trying to seek is what about the personality? What makes mm -hmm. a good cop? What makes a good law enforcement right. officer? Right? And especially we did that about three and a half years ago. That's when we started. And it was very, it start, we, we had this whole phenomenon that started around law enforcement, uh, negative press around police officers. Yeah. And, and Very sensitive uh, topic right now. Oh, extremely sensitive. And as a matter of fact, it's a, it's a, it's a vicious circle because these law enforcement officers are, are really trying to do a good job in serving and, and protecting us. But at the same time, that animosity uh, raises uh, concerns and also it, it disconnects the law enforcement officer from the community. And that connection to the community is essential. So, so, and we've observed it in our technology. So the technology, what it does basically, it does a personality, personality assessment. And it's not based on the traditional of the likes of Myers and Briggs because right. those Carl Jung based uh, uh, tests were, um, well, basically, let's face it, they, they were built by amateurs back then. They are deterministic. And they pretended that that was your personality and that's it. And they didn't really say anything bad about you or anything good. They just say, oh, you're an extrovert, you're not. Right. And, and because it was certified, uh, people embraced it because they're sort of, they just kept going with it because what do we do? Uh, we risk mitigate all the time, right? So if something is, is certified, then we just go with it. Yep. And then we don't worry about losing our job because of a decision around it. But you could discriminate, but it's, there is a lot of things going on here. Yep. So... Think about it differently. So with artificial intelligence, you can take the, ter the deterministic aspect out of it. So, so what do we do? So Watson was trained to, um, to, un to basically understand natural language, so that's called NLP, natural language processing. Mm -hmm. And from the structure of the language, was able to juxtapose the structure of the language and the, the intents of the text and whatnot against the ocean big five model. 
And that's uh, basically saying the tax reveals attributes about your personality across uh, five big groups. Um, and, and some things really, really detail, like susceptibility to stress, you know, as it falls under one of the traits uh, under the five groups. And from that perspective, when you ask questions and you write an essay, and we did that, and people say, oh, those yeah. candidates don't want to write text. Or, no, actually they did because they're in the context and the intent of getting employed. Yeah. So simple questions about their childhood, their neighborhood, how they feel about it. Not one to five questions, do you like kids, one to five, right? And right. you have to ask five more questions to make sure that the first question was answered you know, consistently. These systems are old style. Now the ability for them to write and express themselves was really meaningful because it was about how they expressed themselves that mattered. And then when we can detect different personality traits, it gives us the ability to see what, what is an optimal law enforcement officer. So in this case, we looked at the FBI's recommendation for personality that are optimal for law enforcement and mm -hmm. personality that are at risk. Well, from that simple test, we were able to establish a score and have a correlation. And it's been very successful. And we've been able to assist and help the recruitment process where you look at the score and you say, hmm, you know, in terms of uh, either, like as I was mentioning, susceptibilities to stress or community-minded uh, and whatnot, um, maybe this candidate did very well on the physical aptitude and other aptitude, but hmm, over here, maybe short-tempered. So during the right. interview, I might just focus on that. So can you imagine what that does? On top of that, I could look at my best employees and say, is there a likeness from my high-performing employees in sales or in a different department and we have an algorithm that basically uh, generates a likeness pattern. And new candidates who come in uh, are matched against that likeness pattern. So, oh, yeah, so you don't match our support center, but you match our top executives. Mm -hmm. But for law enforcement, it's great. And now we're expanding in Texas. So we, um, we've been here two and a half years. Uh, we are getting so much traction in New England. So now we're saying, okay, let's bring this technology over here. And uh, we actually, next week, we have a meeting with several uh, police departments in the area. That's great. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. What, it's I love, what I love about it is, I mean, there's there's a clear use case here in the examples you gave with the, the police departments. But uh, to me, it sounds like this really ought to be applied in every business. Oh, my gosh. It's such a crapshoot to make good hires these days. But you realize how hard it is. Like, just to put this, I'll give you a context. When we talk to businesses and we talk to HR, their number one priority, right, is to reduce attrition, right, and um, and, and risk mitigation. Right. So they always worry about the 1964 Act around the anti-discrimination and all of that, and they're they're used to to doing things a certain way. Which it's is fair. It's fair. You have to have it, that. Yeah. It's safe and it's fair. No, no, you need to. And but the biggest thing is that they always worry about um, bringing some new method, some new approach, because they they're right. risk adverse, right? Yep. yep. So it's easier for a small organization, but they, we're working with them on that. They're becoming a lot more cognizant that it doesn't create a risk. And an employee, and, and here's the thing about personality, and you, you, this is what the wonderful thing that happens around AI. Uh -huh. Personality is not static. You may have instincts. We may have core, but your personality is not static. Mm -hmm. The way I speak to you right now, I'm projecting a personality that is very different than the one I would project if I was conducting a if I was in an interview or right. if I was writing a love letter or whichever. Yeah. Our personality changes over time. One of the things we're able to do, and this is where these companies are getting it, what is the pulse of our culture? What is the pulse of the personality of the organization? How do we change over time? I can tell you that with our technology, we can identify if 
your workforce is getting more stress or less stress? Or what are the normal cycle when that occurs? Right. This is the type of analytics, the byproduct that comes from it that makes it extremely uh, powerful. And we're looking at it in different areas, yep. education being one of them, as you know. Yeah, that, that's outstanding. Uh, so at the lead of the show, I kind of mentioned, okay, Darwin does innovation, engineering. And we talked about AI, blockchain, some other things. But how does a customer, how does a client know, how does a company know hey, I'm going to need help, and I should turn to Darwin Ecosystem? Well, that's a really good question. And I think that most companies that approach us are innovative companies. They're looking, they're looking for new things. Um, and sometimes, and I, and I mentioned this you know, in, um, in, in my workshops, and we have an innovation workshop to help companies explore um, and discover what they may, they, how technology can help them, how do we, what happens when we inject it in, into their business processes. I, I, I divide projects in three categories, right? Yep. Um, the paint by number. That's what everybody that's wants. Right. They want to paint by number. Why? Because I want to build a bridge. We know what material. We know how long it's going to take. Mm-hmm. Everybody's in the budget. You know, everything is, is clear. So everybody wishes for the paint by number. The reality is that innovation projects fall in two other categories. The fog project. Mm-hmm. Something dramatic is happening. Our world is changing. Our business is changing competition and we were taken by surprise and we're in the fog and we're trying to find our bearings. We're trying to find how we're going to get out of it. So those are the necessity-based projects, that, that one. But the one that really drives most is the Quest project. The Quest project is the one where you say, we want to achieve this goal. We want to solve that problem. How do we get there? And very often when we deal with clients, they want a Quest project to be a paint by number. So that's one of the challenge, and they over-engineer, or they hire too many data scientists, or when they want to go on top of the hill and they see a river, and they want to go to the top of the hill, they want to build a bridge for that river, where in fact they just could cut a tree and just walk the river because they never have to <laughs> walk it again, right? right? The, the companies who are looking for innovations in these days, I would say large businesses, definition of success for large businesses is boredom. Who's going to fight to deposit the check at the bank? And um, we just want a steady growth. Uh, doing something different, doing something innovative, is not often a preferred uh, state because it's disruptive. Right. Right. So we are looking for companies or divisions who are saying, you know what, we want to do better, or we see a threat, uh, or we we believe, you know, just some changing s- simple uh, simple indication of monitoring, uh, for instance, and in CRM, um, the sentiment of the outbound email and, and trying to see if uh, there is, what the impact is. Sometimes sometime it's just as simple as that. Sometimes it's, oh, we want to put a new technology. Um, airport, for instance, uh, how do we, do we put sensors on every garbage to figure out when it's full or when the floor is wet? <laughs> or do we create a small low-grade camera that is able to detect the patterns without, you know, without having to worry about uh, being expensive? And then uh, linked into AI that uh, establishes a predictive schedule for maintenance to show up. Yeah. Well, that's kind of cool, right? And it's simple. It is. And, you know, even with the word innovate, I think we always associate that with uh, some kind of high-end technology, a big leap forward. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, I mean, kind of what you just hit on, it, it can vary from the very rudimentary mm-hmm. to the high-tech but the key is it drives some level of improvement. That's it. It, it. We wouldn't do it if it didn't improve anything, right? Right. That's really the bottom line. Yeah, I'm with you there. So let's move into our lightning round, Terry. Oh, wow. Oh, you got <laughs> Are one you of those. Are you geared up and ready for that? Well, you warmed me up enough. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you wish you had known when you started your career? 
<laughs> what would you tell your younger self? <laughs> two two directions. Yeah. The direction the uh, make a make a wise decision. Um, do you want a life that is um, predictable, right? Yeah. Or do you want a life that's exciting and uh, <laughs> and that uh, risk uh, and the wolf lurks behind every tree? Uh, it's a character <laughs> choice, and I and I yeah. think a, a lot of us, our parents, want us to take the stable life. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I see it more and more today. I see it more and more today. I see I see all these these new kids coming out in school out of schools, and they they went in technology because they feel it's a secure, it's a safe job to have. It's data science and whatnot, programming, and it's a for me. I'm I'm, I'm 55, right? And I've seen the generation where everybody went in technology, went in it because they loved it, because they were passionate, and they didn't mind, you know, giving it all. Yep. And today, the today I, I feel that uh, I want to find more of those people, honestly, yeah. because of the age of innovation. So to me, the biggest thing is I wish I had paused and made that decision. Yeah. And um, quite frankly, I, I'm glad I took the, the risky road because it's yeah. far more exciting in life. It seems to me like you've ta- yours has been a um, a bit of a blend. Yeah, I mean you've got you've had the entrepreneurial route, you had the quote unquote stability of the big company yeah, IBM, my, and, well, you and continued down IBM, your path. Yeah, and even before IBM, I started at PwC. Yeah, yes, yeah, before Cooper came in, before <laughs> they even entertained oh, uh, merging with uh, with Arthur Anderson back yeah. then. Um, yes, I. But you know, it was great boot camp. Oh I mean, yeah, on, absolutely. On, Honest to God, if I didn't early on have this, and, and, and it's unfair because when you look at PwC back then or Pricewaterhouse back then, I mean, I wasn't there where they were still doing audits with paper. And I was there to say, hey, Terry, can you help us explore how to go from paper to electronic, how to do auditing, take code from mainframes and put them on a PC, and can we do sampling, can we do uh, install networks? I mean, Windows was not out there, you know, we were doing right. DOS-based program. So... I was, even though I was in a in an environment that's highly structured and highly disciplined, um, I was even reprimanded once for wearing a, a shirt that had, fla- uh, sorry, not a shirt, a tie that had a flower, a daisy oh, on geez. it. They made fun of me for that, but I'm French, so I got away with it. <laughs> but the but but that was like boot camp. Yeah. It was fantastic, and and then but I was in boot camp in a fun project, like I was in Air Fifty Four. Wow, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, you know? now I'm right there with you. I mean, I got my my career started with KPMG and EY strategy and operations and um you know they they always would talk about it's just such a great place to start your career it is and it looking is. back it truly is it is and, and especially in those days when you looked at what the university had to offer in this space i mean it was happening in the enterprise at this at this level mm-hmm. the college gives you the good foundations but there was yeah. no um, you know there was no class like they have today in uh in methodologies and, and languages that uh, yep. that are useful in the marketplace yep Okay, I think this is a loaded question because uh, you're you you uh, strike me as the kind of guy that never stops learning. That's right. Are you learning anything right now, and and what is it? Oh boy, yes, I am learning. I'm learning in, always. Uh, yeah, always. And one of my observation is is really what drives business, what drives innovation. But now it's how to be responsible, how to be sustainable. Yep. The one thing that I I there are several things. Um, one of the big thing that concerns me the most uh, around AI, it's uh, it's not AI itself. Um, it's um, it's how it's being sold, but more importantly, how it fits in a economy of growth in a world that is only focusing on growth, 
when we have, if you look uh, at the statistics and you can go online and look at the, the world growth since uh, the 1800s, it looks like a singularity. And we have one planet, and I'm a mm -hmm. big Star Trek fan, right? But I don't think I'm going to be able to warp out of Earth. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I'll tell you this, uh, the responsibility around how we have to think more in terms of sustainability than growth. Is it okay for a business to be sustainable? Why do we need growth? Our economic model right. is, is a problem. So, so when, as technology increases and makes it easier for our lives, and everybody talks about the new jobs and so on, okay, this is great, but not everybody's going to touch those new jobs. We still need to eat. Right. We still need to, we will, you know, we still need healthcare. We still need to make love, as I say. We still have, <laughs> we're still human. We're still yep. human. And I think that as technology replaces a lot of the medial tasks, and we think that we can continue to grow and that prosperity is equal to growth, we have a huge problem. We have an existential problem and we have a survival problem as a species. Um, that to me is, is the biggest thing that I'm looking at and innovating is how can we, we create sustainability over growth? And I know it's not you know, a, 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 an easy thing to accomplish. Everybody has the intention, but we're still driven by the free market yeah. and the free market is all about growth. So it's a we have we need a new social contract since Jean-Jacques Rousseau was the last one we had, right? Uh, yep. Since just prior to the American Revolution and the French Revolution, somehow we need a new social contract. It's interesting. It, a lot of what you hit on is what Simon Sinek talks about in his new book, The Infinite Game. Mm -hmm. uh, worth checking out. I'm listening it listening to it right now, about halfway through. Uh, but yeah, same same concept. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. And the other one is I observe people looking at doing design fiction. I love science fiction, right? Mm -hmm. But science fiction drives a lot of the innovation and our fears. And I wish that um, that there was a, a little bit more awareness. Uh, I had to deal with as a client who, you know, who believed that Watson could do all these wonderful things. Oh, he could do the chatbot, could do this, could do that. The one thing I, I remind people, it's, uh, and you know, a system that can answer all the questions, what it has to be taught. And I say, well, you want to start with a universal AI system that understands all your questions? Why don't you start in 1998? And oh, just, yeah. just sort of fun of it, let's call it Google. <laughs> you know, yeah. Let's get like billions and trillions of questions and answer. And then, then perhaps we can talk. So can you do that in a company? Can you effectively believe that AI can solve that problem? So that's design fiction. That's people not yeah. understanding the gap between fiction and reality. And quite frankly, it is terrific because the other thing I've observed is that it is a lot easier to sell the public on innovation when they have accepted it in fiction, like the Motorola phone, the right. tablet with Star, Star Trek, the next yep. generation. To me, design fiction or minority report in what we do. Right. Right. That's what they fear. And the technology is right? nowhere near there. Right. The flying car. Everybody's yeah. still waiting on the DeLorean. Hey, dude, where's my jetpack? That's a book, <laughs> That's actually. Right. And I love it. That's Who's right. Yeah. My That's jetpack. Right. Yes. So uh, what's, uh, shifting gears a bit, what's your adult drink of choice? My adult drink of choice? Oh, yeah. the old-fashioned. Yeah. I love old-fashioned. <laughs> They're good, aren't they? <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. I had a few uh, last night. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, slept well. But uh, how about coffee of choice? Oh, my coffee of choice. Um, you know, I, a lot of people like different coffees, but I love coffee, period. I drink coffee all day. Yeah. I really don't care as long as it's, it's dark, hot, and bold. <laughs> it gives you a, a little jump. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's I'm, I'm, I'm not a coffee snob. That's good. <laughs> How about, you know, so what are some routines you set for yourself to, you know, to oh. be successful? Other routines? Uh, always be on the lookout for an innovation. Never mm -hmm. take anything for granted. Yeah. Um, so I, 
I do, um, I do like to work out on occasion. My biggest thing is travel because when I uh, and I'm, I'm those are the long, the large routine, right? But yeah. I do have the advantage to travel often because I think it opens my mind to different options and to different problems at different degrees of reality. And I think this is why my ability to correlate and innovate and find quickly solutions to problem comes from. But in a routine, uh, in a routine, uh, I like I like to do. I have to check my to dos every morning. I'm I'm somebody who, who believes in in writing every action that needs to take place, categorizing them, and I start my day by looking uh, at all the tasks ahead, all the to do, all the notes, and then then I start. I think that's really important uh, because things can pile up, especially when you deal in innovation. Everything is so chaotic. As you know, we deal with projects dealing with blockchain, with AI, with this and that. And so, one of uh, one of our, uh, our, our our staff person who's really brilliant, I really like him, Josh McFall, tells me all the time. Says, "Cherry, changing codes is very expensive, and mm-hmm. I change codes all day. Meaning, I change roles all yeah, day, right? Yeah. So, you, I need consistency, philosophy. And and recently, I I decided to uh, to stick to um, to a plant based diet." Funny enough, and for being French, it's very. It's, it would have been difficult, but it's not. But that discipline, when yeah. you deal with chaos and innovation all the time, you need to find a discipline in your life. You need to have um, short-term and long-term achievable goal that you can measure, you can feel, because mm-hmm. you're dealing so much with the unpredictable, and you're dealing so much with the variable of measurements that um, I would say one of a good hygiene is to establish a routine of some sort that is measurable. That's great. Now that's that's very powerful. And you're right, in innovation and in, in running a business, there's so much um, that's just not routine. Right. So trying to be disciplined about the things you can control, right? Mm-hmm. That's great. So Terry, let's let's go ahead and close things out here. What's it like uh, for somebody to reach out to you? How can somebody get a hold of you or find Darwin? Well, uh, our website, darwinecosystem.com. That's the easiest way to, to go. Or you can email me, Thierry, at darwinecosystem.com. So Thierry, T-H-I-E-R-R-Y. So it's a French name, obviously. Thank um, you for spelling that. <laughs> yes, I know. Believe me, yeah. I get them all. Yeah. Um, no, but you, you, know, you, can, you can reach us this way, I think. Uh, and, and I'd love to have conversations. As you can tell, yeah. you know, I, I can... I, hard to make me stop <laughs> and i'm gonna have to have you back on the show <laughs> Thank i you. hate that we have yeah I, I try to stick to about 30 to 40 minutes uh, i think we should have blocked out a few hours for this <laughs> honestly but uh no, i appreciate you making the time to be part of the show Thank and i uh, would love to have you be a guest again uh soon I really appreciate it, Andrew. Thank you. You bet. So thank you all for listening to the Louderco Dallas Space Innovators podcast. I'm Andrew Louder signing out. That's our show for today. We hope you took away something valuable. Be sure to visit Louderco at louderco.com for more. Thank you again and stay tuned for more from Dallas-based innovators.